Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. One of the characteristics common to all the founders we've had on Brand Growth Heroes is that they are brave, or at least they make really brave decisions. I've worked in food and beverage all my life, working with hundreds of startups through my work with some super food business accelerator programs, yet I've never been brave enough to found my own food company. But I've always admired the bravery of food entrepreneurs with a certain degree of awe. So one of the themes I want to explore in this series is the brave decisions that food and beverage founders make. In this episode, I've invited a very brave founder to come and talk to us, Hugh Thomas from Ugly Drinks. I came across Ugly Drinks on LinkedIn, where the brand is incredibly visible. I was struck by their super bright packaging and arresting name. I was really curious about what seemed like quite a risky or brave decision to use a word that's generally perceived as negative as a brand name. Ugly Drinks was founded by best friends Hugh Thomas and Joe Ben in 2017. Coming from Vita Coco, they were concerned at the lack of healthy or unsweetened options in the soda category for the average family. Ugly is a range of sparkling water that is flavoured but unsweetened in brightly coloured, potentially iconic cans. Ugly's website positions it as just a drink, no obtainable lifestyles, no ridiculous promises, and somewhat bravely, given the enormous competitors in this space, asks us to can the other cans. Ugly is now available in over 10,000 locations, two countries, and is also available on subscription. In the past month, they've also launched a range of energised sparkling water, which to me sounds just different enough from an energy drink that I might even be tempted to try it. Here's our interview earlier this week where we discuss the brave decisions around positioning, naming and flavouring, locating to the USA and funding. Hugh Thomas, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes and thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. Where are you calling from today? Thanks Fiona. Um, It's great to be on the podcast with you. I appreciate the invite. Um, I'm in New York today. Uh, The sun is shining. It's very cold outside. And uh, yeah, it's uh, exciting to be talking to you. How long have you been in New York for? I've lived here just over one year now. Uh, the business launched here May last year. So about we've been in this market about 18 months now. Okay, fabulous. 18 months. So before I came across Ugly, if you'd asked me to describe the offering in the flavoured sparkling water category to you, I'd probably tell you that it's in the chilled aisle. I'd see long, tall bottles in my local co-op or Boots or WH Smith probably aimed at adults with more than the average disposable income, maybe with sweetened and with names that had words such as summer or a hint of or cloudy or other positive airy words. And and I'd probably tell you that they were more expensive in my perception than a canned drink. But that's not where you guys are positioning yourselves at all, is it? No, so um, it's a great point. If you haven't seen Ugly, Ugly is a bright blue can uh, with the big word ugly on its side in a street art graffiti style font. It's available in the UK and the US. Uh, If you're in the UK, you can find us in Tesco's and Sainsbury's and online, as you've mentioned. The brand was really born out of a frustration, as you said, that Joe and I felt with traditionally sugar, sweetened soft drinks and the marketing around them. We felt that the big soda companies promised one thing in terms of happiness, aspirational lifestyles, uh, fun packaging. And then when you opened the can or turned around the pack and looked at the back, there were grams and grams of sugar uh, artificial ingredients and, and chemicals that you don't want to be drinking. And we, we knew that with an emerging demographic, or certainly with a younger demographic who was looking for healthier alternatives, that picking up a can of soda, as it has been, felt like a strange decision. 
Um, and what we wanted to create was a much healthier alternative to that that could be affordable at a price point for everyone, available in the same places as a can of soda, and ultimately wrapped in a brand world that really spoke to and related to consumers. Um, so we didn't set out to create a, a health brand, uh, even though Ugly has no calories, it's 100% na natural, no sugar or sweetener in the product at all. Um, and so we wanted to create a, a healthier soda without any of the bad stuff. Ah. So if you imagine, you imagine a soda is sparkling water with loads of stuff added to it, we just took the bad stuff out. So does that mean that you, competitively speaking, are positioning yourselves up against cans of soda rather than up against those tall sparkly drinks that I was talking about? Exactly, yeah. I mean, even a lot of those tall sparkly drinks have sweeteners in and we wanted to really show consumers that it was another way of getting that ice cold can refreshment moment. Okay. There is still something special about opening the can and that moment when you open it. Um, and we, we knew that consumers of all ages still want that. It's still a great kind of feeling to grab that cold can at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. But why does it need to have the guilt associated with either the sugar, the, the sugar of a traditional soda or the sweetness of a diet soft drink that have lots of kind of mysterious uh, impacts on you? Um, so we took all the bad stuff out and um, people can drink kind of five, six cans of this a day without any of the guilt that they maybe have had from a soda experience. So let's tell um, our listeners what it tastes like, because I bought a case recently online and I was really surprised at the taste. And I'll let you go first and then I'll, I'll share my experience. <laughs> yeah, so, so we obviously have a, we have a range of flavours. So, I mean, we can ultimately make any flavour you can imagine. With um, In the UK, we have a lemon lime, a triple berry, a tropical flavour and a, most recently a peach, which we just launched. The product uses essences and natural flavors to infuse the sparkling water. So what you're tasting is if it's ice cold and carbonated, the kind of all the refreshment of a soda in terms of the mouthfeel, the ice cold soft drink, uh, but then the, the, the hint or the, the flavor of peach, for example. Um, in the US, we have the same and the same with our Energize product you mentioned. That product has um, 160 milligrams of caffeine in it, which is organic green coffee, caffeine, guarana and ginseng the same amount of caffeine as a monster energy drink but again none of the sugar and sweetener so when you're drinking it you're getting that refreshment you're getting the hydration of water uh but you're getting a hit of that flavor that, that you that you love but you you are not drinking 40 grams of sugar like a can of soda but let's be really honest here i mean it tastes totally different from anything else i have ever tasted before because you take a mouthful and it is totally and utterly unsweetened so it's quite a shock the first time well, for me anyway, it was quite a shock the first time I, I swallowed it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and in, certainly in the UK, where this is an emerging category, we are going, try this, it's not soda, but you'll get, like, it's, it's, it doesn't have any of the bad stuff in it. You don't have to feel guilty about drinking it. There's none of the health impacts of drinking kind of 40 grams of sugar in, in 30 seconds. Um, in the US, this is the fastest growing beverage category. It's a multi-billion dollar category here. And consumers are taking to it and switching out of soda. So Joe and I were motivated to, to try and cause the same impact in the UK and cause a, a shift in terms of public health away from drinking sugar towards drinking something unsweet. And what we're seeing is when people get used to drinking it, it's equally strange to go back to something sweetened because you drink something with 40 grams of sugar in it, a traditional soda, it's like having, I don't know, if you were to eat that many teaspoons of sugar it would on a plate or out of a bowl, it would look absolutely bizarre. It would be 10 to 14 teaspoons of sugar, which you'd never eat. Um, and so we're kind of just 
we're seeing people reduce that sweet tooth they have and get used to drinking more sparkling water or more water when they have soda habits. And that's what's really exciting, I think, about what we're doing. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, because my experience was the first few mouthfuls I found quite strange and different. And then after I had got halfway through the can, I got it. And I was like, I actually am really enjoying this. And after the second can, then the rest of the case was gone within, I think, two or three days. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's, what we see. that's what we see. I mean, once once your fridge is full and then it's empty, you're kind of going, oh, I, I got used to drinking that and I didn't have any guilt. I wasn't feeling like I was doing something taboo. So more people are getting used to that. But let, let's talk about brave decisions then. I mean, really, was it a brave decision that you guys made at the very beginning to have this totally un? sweetened did you ever consider softening it somehow or sweetening it somehow and then say no we need to stick to our guns here yeah i mean it's a great point the, the whole of this company and the whole of this journey has been um littered with brave decisions uh the name is the fir- very first one we made. even quitting our jobs is the first one we made um the name the fact that it is such a disruptive liquid as you've said really sometimes makes life difficult right but if, if you want to solve a big problem, which is what really drives us, you have to make some big leaps and not succumbing to adding sweetener, uh, stevia, aspartame, really trying to help consumers have really, truly unsweetened decisions was a big driver for us. And I feel very confident that um, it will continue to grow as it is. So you never wavered? You no, I'm, I'm, I th- Joe and I are both extremely driven by the mission. Uh, we didn't want to compromise at all. And there's no compromises in the brand or, or the way we operate. And we, we have a team of people that are on the same page as us who all felt frustrated with the with the market the same way as we were. And so, yeah, that that's that's something we're really committed to sticking to. Okay, so, so talk to us then. You mentioned the, the brand name. So talk to us about the brand name Ugly. Yeah, so, I mean, at the face of it, hopefully everyone listening remembers it. Um, it's easy to spell and easy to find. And as you'd imagine, uh, big soda companies or big consumer products companies don't quite have the, the nerve to call their product something like ugly. So we always knew that it was going to be something memorable and that stood out. But the real meaning behind the brand came from Joe and I sitting back and going, all of these health, so-called healthy products promise health, wellness, um, they've got this many vitamins, they've got this ingredient in it, they've got this, but you turn the product around and it's loaded with sugar, it's got loads of fruit juice in it, it's got artificial ingredients, you name it. And so consumers are buying flavoured bottled water, for example, that has sugar dissolved in it and drinking that to hydrate in a heat wave in the summer. Or they're buying soda thinking it's going to make them happy or, or have great lifestyles, but really it's probably delivering diabetes or something like that. So Joe and I wanted to do something that totally exposed that. And we, we there was a quote, um, this is kind of two, three years ago now, around the same time as American elections were happening and Brexit was happening as well. And the quote's a George Orwell quote from 1984, which is, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And we felt that there was a lot of similarities between the way people were feeling about kind of fake news and things like that. What were they reading? What's, what can I trust anymore? Um, certainly um, a younger demographic was feeling this too, and, and our peer group certainly. Um, we also felt that was similar in terms of the way people have felt about the natural food movement, turning around big labels on big food and drink companies and going, actually, what am I drinking? What have I been being sold for a long time? And so that quote inspired us to tell the truth. And we had this this, this brainwave around the ugly truth, um, which has become the platform that the business is built on. So we tell the ugly truth about sugary and sweetened soda. 
But the business is beyond that now. We're obviously taking on energy drinks with our latest range. And we also donate money back from every can sold uh, to another ugly truth in the world, which, we, which is gender inequality. So we work with the United Nations Foundation charity Girl Up. And we give money from every can sold in the US and the UK to help solve gender inequality, which our team was felt really passionately about. Um, and we found, we found a great partner in Girl Up who we, we're giving money back to. So th- this is just a start for us. It's, it's, it's something much bigger. It's about a next generation of soft drink company. There are other soft drink um, or food products that we could potentially disrupt in future if we wanted to. There's so many ugly truths out there for us to expose, but that's where the name come from. And obviously we're trying to deliver it with a sense of fun, a sense of lightheartedness, not taking ourselves too seriously. Um, hopefully when people see it and get, fall into the brand world, that they just go, wow, this is so refreshing and different to, different to the way brands have done this stuff in the past. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is really refreshing is that you, when we were on the phone having our little pre-prep meeting, you explained to me that in terms of pricing, you're priced to so that the middle of the market can afford you. The people who drink soda, canned soda in the world can afford you. And I thought that was incredibly refreshing because from a business point of view, uh, many startups you know, come up with a concept that really only appeals to a very select few at the top end of a market. It's generally a premium product because their ingredients are expensive and they have to price it that way as a result. But you guys are going bang in in the middle and that's really refreshing. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you think so. It was always a goal of, of Joe and I, um, having worked in natural food and drink for a while, that, you know, health, health and healthy products or healthier products shouldn't just be affordable by the few. They should be affordable by the many. Um, and quite often when you when you leave London or you leave New York or you leave California and go to any store, you'll see that people don't have lots of disposable income. They're trying to look after themselves, but they're trying to make easier decisions that don't break the bank. And sometimes buying green juice or um, kombuchas, et cetera, can be an expensive habit as much as I love those things myself. Um, so we, we set out to create a product that could help people who are drinking lots of soda, which is everywhere, if not the largest CPG category there is in both countries, how can you help people make easier soft drinks decisions that cut 40 grams of sugar per can out of their diet um, in a way that doesn't break the bank, makes it an easy decision, an easy switch. And that's what we set out to do. And so we, we started the business obviously in London, expanding from there, but and the same in New York. But recently we've launched, as I was telling you earlier, in Tennessee last week in the middle of America, which is a massive soda market. And our product is as affordable as of well-known soda brands, and it's right up against them in, on, in store. So if you're looking to make a, make a healthier switch, you're not making a sacrifice out of your wallet. That's brilliant. And tell me this, when you're starting a company and you're starting on small launch volumes and you're going to co-manufacturers or co-packers and you've got small volumes, how do you come up with a product cost that allows you to compete uh, at the same price as the middle of the market? What's the trick here, Hugh? Tell us all. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, part of being a founder is that you have to sell the dream to lots of different parties and lots of different people. Often, I think what's spoken about in terms of founders being interviewed is they'll speak about selling to the initial customers, the retailers, and they'll talk about selling to initial consumers, both of which are incredibly important. But throughout the chain of Ugly, there are many stakeholders that we've had to take on the journey with us and convince to believe in what we're doing. Um, the co-packers we worked with right at the beginning of the business, um, we had to get them on side and get them to believe in the vision we had, which they did. And we're very thankful that they did. 
Um, they saw that we were ambitious. Um, they saw that we had plans for growth. And so we went and met them. We built personal relationships and we treat those relationships as if they're the same as a retailer relationship. This whole thing can't happen with many people involved. And so I think quite often, you know, pushing, pushing co-manufacturers to be more giving, to be more confident, to sell the vision to them as well is as important as selling it to anyone else. And I think that was a big thing that we did early. We, we really spent a lot of time planning our supply chain. We have manufacturing in California, in the Northeast, in the Southeast, in the US. We also produce locally in the UK. So we thought about how our supply chain would work and how we could scale this to be to deliver what we say we're going to deliver at the beginning. Okay, so you've actually done an awful lot of the thinking on the business model side of this before you go live, so to speak. It can look like that. Yeah, it can look like that now when I'm talking about it. But a lot of this is worked out as you're going. But yeah, I think one of the things Joe and I learned from working at Vitacoco, which is an amazing business, is that shipping coconut water around the world and finding coconut plantations in the Philippines, in Thailand, in Brazil is a lot of work. And so making sure that you get that locked in and try not to expose, we, we didn't want to expose ourselves too much to, to global commodity costs or currency fluctuations or shipping fees. So what we wanted to do, both from an environmental point of view, but also being able to deliver demand is try and create the product as locally to consumers as possible uh, to minimize the shipping, to minimize flying products around, et cetera, that, that some businesses are forced to do. And we're really happy we made that decision now because um, hopefully it can help help us have a, a better carbon footprint in time. But um, yeah, it was definitely something we thought about right from the beginning. And the great thing about this product is that there's lots of different factories that can produce it as well. You know, as you're speaking, it's making me think about any of the listeners out there who haven't worked in the food industry before and have recently started or have spent the last few years starting their own food company or beverage company. And I'm wondering if they're kind of going, oh, God, this guy has so much experience and he's learned so <laughs> many lessons that he's able to now, you know, sew into what he's doing. Uh, is there any point in me, you know, trying to compete <laughs> against this? And and it's kind of in a way, it's kind of true because a lot of the really successful startups in Food and Bev have got someone in there who have had a huge amount of experience and have kind of learned Things like there's, you know, it's very expensive and timely and takes a lot of people to ship coconut water across the world. What would you say to to those people who haven't had the experience in the food industry that you've had? I'd say, yeah, I'd say I've been doing this a few years now, so I can speak well about it on podcasts is the first thing. But okay. the, the ugly truth is Joe and I started this in my apartment in London with no money and we were 23, 24. And yes, I'd worked at Vitacoco, but I wasn't a stalwart of the industry then and I definitely thought I knew more than I did. So Joe and I have made mistakes because of that, that blase-ness um, okay. of believing we knew what we were talking about. So sometimes it's been a, a curse, not a blessing for us. Um, I mean, the thing I'd say to everyone is that everything I've learned, I've learned from other people, other people who've been generous with their time and their, and their knowledge. And there are plenty of people. And I'd put myself in there. If anybody wants to reach out to me, they can. That's really who, nice of you. Who can, can pass on learnings, you know, um, the only way Ugly has been able to get to where it has is being, being being helped up the ladder by someone who went through this journey before. And so there are countless founders, countless startup employees of other startups who Ugly has asked advice from, got help from over the last kind of four or five years. And that is the great thing about this industry is that it's generally, well, I can't think of anyone I don't really like, you know, everyone's super nice, everyone's passionate about food and beverage. Um, it's a hard enough industry as it is without people not being nice. And I just think, 
you know, if, if you're not sure the answer to a question, there is somebody out there who knows it. Um, and one of the questions we asked from right at the beginning was if somebody said they couldn't help, we asked them, do you know anyone who can? And quite often that question got us to the right person. Yeah. So the whole thing is about joining the dots. Right at the beginning, when we were looking at launching the business in the USA, I had no idea how to do it. No idea at all. No idea how to set up a US company, tax, manufacturing, nothing. Even my visa process, nothing at all. And it's all come from asking questions and joining the dots. And so I can speak well about it looking backwards, but I had no idea what it looks like going forwards at the beginning. It reminds me, you know, as you're talking exactly the same for me in France, when James Averdick sent me off to France on the train <laughs> with my two freezer bags. I, I literally did not have a clue. I didn't have a clue. Not a clue. I'd never done sales before. Uh, you know, had I ever stepped inside a car for an ocean before? Didn't know how supply chain worked. And you just have to make loads of phone calls, don't you? You just have to pick up the phone. Pick there's, up the phone. There's always someone who's done it before. And yeah. there's always somebody nice enough to help you out. And yeah. it, once you start joining the dots and let, all that, let that information settle, it becomes obvious. And things click. Things click for me at frustrating moments too. There's times this year where I thought something's clicked and I wish I could rewind six months, but I can't. Mm-hmm. You just have to go forwards and take that learning with you. So let's talk about your move to the States. I mean, one of the things when companies get to say, you know, the five, six million mark, they start talking about big export moves. I'm not talking about, you know, being listed with a wholesaler for the French market or the German market, but I'm talking about establishing a presence abroad. And they seem to battle with it. Well, certainly when they're talking to me, they go, God, you know, should we, shouldn't we? It's going to take management, you know, focus away because I'll have to think about that. When do you make that move? And, and was that a struggle for you guys? How did you make that decision? I think it's a really good question. There isn't, there isn't necessarily a play. There's not a playbook, really. There's not a right or wrong answer. I think it depends on what you've set out to achieve and what you want to do. Joe and I had worked for a U.S. beverage company before. Um, we would have been lucky enough to spend time in the U.S. market with that company. And so we'd had a taste for it. And we'd seen the way it was done, the style, the the potential for growth. And so it always felt like it was possible for us to do it. And it always felt like we'd worked for an American business in the U.K. Why can't British founders go the other way? And that that that's, there's no theory behind that. There's no Harvard Business Review on why that we had that mentality. That's just us being in our early 20s, thinking anything's possible. And I'm very passionate about the UK and UK founders and the quality of ideas we have. But the world's biggest CPG market, certainly for beverage and soda, and ultimately the place where the problem we wanted to solve is the biggest, was the USA. And so we always develop the brand and the supply chain and the products with the USA in mind and the, the world in mind, really. We want to build a global brand. And I think lots of British companies, and I think being British myself sometimes, and even me saying that now has taken time to get to the point where you can be ambitious and confident in, in okay. saying that's what we want to do. Quite often the UK can see itself as an island and what happens in London feels like the centre of the world. And I think for me, I always feel that when I go back there, but there is a huge opportunity outside of it as well as as well as the UK, which is an amazing market and we're still super focused on. But um yeah, very early on in the business, we decided we wanted to launch here. We partnered with you, with investors who had experience in this market. We've raised more capital since from U.S. investors. And our company is a, is set up in the U.S. now as well, right? So it's not an export. We're not exporting stuff from ships to the U.S. We properly set this up for the long run. 
I think international expansion is a double-edged, is a kind of double-edged sword. There's huge opportunities out there, but also complexity. And Europe, as much as I love it, offers lots of different complexity with languages, with cultures. Whereas for us, we felt the US with the category that is here growing so fast that the opportunity to take down the $100 billion soda market felt really exciting. And so for us, that made sense. For everyone else, it might not. And so on a store level, how is your performance in the US? How are you rating versus other sodas in the category? So, yeah, so we launched in New York May 2018 and then recently launched in Tennessee and soon to be Arizona too. Um, we are going state by state and testing ugly in states that are slightly different. So New York, which everybody knows, obviously, is like very built up, lots of stores, lots of disposable income, people are interested in trying new products. So in this market here, Ugly is performing super well versus the other flavor sparkling waters. Um, and that whole category is beginning to take share from soda um, over the last few years. And so this market here, we've seen great success. But the next frontier for us is proving that we can take flavored sparkling water to the heartland of soda. And so we launched in Tennessee three weeks ago. Um, we've sold about 7,000 cases in Tennessee in the last three weeks of Ugly. So that's... Yeah, what, like 50,000, almost 100,000 cans in the last few weeks. Two people in a market where soda has been dominant for a very long period of time. We obviously now need to, to really focus in those places and make sure it works. And so when I was, I was there last week stacking shells uh, in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee, which is strange for a founder from the UK, but soda is still dominant. You know, these big companies have a lot of power, a lot of influence, amazing teams, amazing marketing. And so we're, we're up against it. But, um, you know, as, as, as you know, Fiona, challenger brands have, have ways of making magic happen. And so hopefully we can, we can do some of that ourselves. So you're going state by state in the States. So, and, and in terms of distribution, do you have wheels or trucks or wholesalers or how do you do it? Yeah, so again, different, different industries are slightly different. So food and beverage are very different in the US and natural food and, and I guess more mainstream food are also slightly different. The way we have approached um, the US market to make it less scary was to chunk it up. Kind of, I remember GCSE bite size being a thing when I was growing up. And we said, well, the US is super scary coming from the UK, right? Just the sheer, sheer geographical scale of it. Flying from New York to LA is the same as flying from New York to London, you know? Um, same distance as London to the Congo, interestingly. Um, wow. So we, we've chunked it up. And so we're going state by state and we're, we're working to prove out that it works in, in the different markets. So Arizona's warm West Coast market. Tennessee, as I just said, is a, is a middle American, different consumer soda market. And then the East Coast, Northeast, where New York is, is obviously, as I said, very different again. In each of those markets, we have distributors um, who distribute the product for us. And then we have local ugly team in those markets selling the product and working with the distributor to get it on shelves um, and also do local market activation to pull it off the shelves. Um, if, if, for example, the way we're doing it, if we went too big too soon, just the scale of this country, the amount of cash it would require, you'd, you'd need to be able to produce huge amounts of product, huge marketing campaigns really quickly, which only very few companies can execute well. Um, even the big companies struggle to do that here. And so, yeah, trying to chunk it up understand, learn quickly, build the playbooks you need to expand it out further is, has been the, the approach for us so far and it seems to be working well. Okay, wow. It's, it sounds like an enormous task. I mean, how many of you are, <laughs> how many of you are working on the, on the US business? 
Uh, well, initially it was just me. I flew over with a suitcase and on my own. So um, it was just me. But now there are seven of us. I hired three people yesterday, so it will be 10 of us next week. And again, the great thing about the US market is if you find the right people, the, the market's fluid. It's two weeks notice, so you can build your team quite quickly. Um, and there's lots of people with great beverage experience here. So we'll have uh, three full-time people in Tennessee as of next week, um, which is pretty crazy. That's Given amazing. My apartment in London. Yeah, exactly. Congratulations. And tell me this then. So you're in the US in the biggest canned soda market in the world, right? I'm imagining that the biggest, you know, SKU is a cola drink, is it? In in that yes, market. Yes, there's a couple of famous ones. A yeah. couple of famous ones. So if you're positioning yourselves up against that, those, you know, big guys, and you want to expose the ugly truth, would a logical, you know, uh, route not be to launch a cola drink as well? Yeah, so, I mean, you can create, we, we have developed many, many flavours of ugly, and there's many more uh, flavours in the pipeline. We have, I have developed a cola flavor that we, we could at some point introduce to the market. I think what we wanted to do at the beginning was introduce kind of fun, fruity flavors that didn't have that kind of dark brown caramel association to them. And so we launched with a range of classically flavored sparkling waters. But we are beginning to develop and test maybe more exciting and interesting concepts. The pina colada flavor we launched yeah. in the U.S., Last year was was crowdsourced by our online fans. So we asked them what they wanted and they said that. So we made it and it tastes amazing. It's very different to a traditional lemon and lime flavored sparkling water, but you can imagine us stretch beginning to stretch that out further. See, I think I think it's it's one of those things where if you go into a market, you either have to be in the biggest SKU, you know, and play in the biggest SKU or not play. And I reckon mm-hmm. it's something you said earlier about that moment where you open the can, it goes, Ksh. and you know, with a particular very um, famous and and loved cola drink, people will often refuse to buy the bottle version because they'll want the can moment when you have that first mm-hmm. gulp and it almost hurts the back of your throat, you know? Yeah. And I just can imagine choosing the cola version of your drink of ugly and having that same feeling at the back of my throat, but just not having the sugar. So let me know when you launch it, because I'll be yes. buying a case. Listen, I'll send you a case. <laughs> yeah, no, we, 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 we've made ugly, we've replicated that same carbonation. And then, yeah, I mean, we're experimenting with lots of different flavors all the time. I'm tasting stuff every other day to new flavors, improvement on current flavors, listening to feedback from customers online in both countries um, to make sure we get it right. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I'll definitely take that feedback on board. Let me know. <laughs> let you know let me know. So listen, last question, because I know that you have um, only a particular bit of time to give us. So investment, talk to us about funding. I remember uh, years ago, people would get, startups would probably get investment from friends or or family or maybe some people in their network that had a bit of money. But it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a going out and doing rounds and rounds of investments, or at least nobody really talked about it. But today it seems that there's a lot of money out there for food companies and that you can do these rounds and it's very tech, you know, and it's all quite sexy and everybody publicizes that they're doing round one, round two, and they've got this investment, that investment. How have you managed that? What What's your thinking been and what's guided you? No, it's, it's a great question. I think the, the companies you mentioned at the beginning were the first wave, certainly in the UK, of, of challenger brands that were producing healthier products than the big CPG companies had been. Um, I think the big food and drink companies basically had it their own way for 100 years plus, where small companies couldn't enter the market. 
there wasn't much access to capital to get off the ground. And they were putting out cases and cases of unhealthy products in supermarkets without any competition at all. So when the likes of Innocent came through, they were disruptive and they disrupted the market so much that Coca-Cola ended up buying them. And because Coca-Cola, as a massive company, struggles to create brands that resonate and have products like Innocent did, which is why it's such an amazing brand. And so what that showed, I think the next wave of founders, is that there was big strategic food and drink companies that can't innovate the same way that entrepreneurs can and are also selling lots and lots of products that consumers are moving away from. They don't want high sugar, fructose corn syrup drinks anymore. They don't want concentrated juices. They want fresh juices. They don't want, you know, unhealthy ice creams. They want something with better ingredients in it. And so entrepreneurs spot these opportunities. Consumers are demanding it and the strategics can't adapt as quickly to do that. And I think once there are a few exits, so to speak, in the industry, venture capital and investors spotted that they could get in early, grow businesses, grow them quickly, and therefore create themselves extra value by selling them to the big food and drink companies who are desperate for the innovation. And so I think that's what's triggered it. And then, again, I agree with you. There's a lot of PR, a lot of press releases about raising money. For me, it's not always something to be totally proud of in the sense that you are giving away part of your company to grow. But it is validation and there are a lot of investors now who have done this before and add a lot of value to the businesses to help you progress faster. And I think it's not necessarily the right thing for every company because some businesses you might just want you might not want other people getting involved in, in helping you do that. You might want to be in total control and not have a board like Ugly does. But for us, in order to achieve what we wanted to achieve and grow quickly and grow to the scale in the markets we wanted to get to. We obviously needed the capital. I mean, Joe and I started this round our kitchen table with not really a penny between us. Um, and and we've needed ex- extra capital and extra input into the business to get us to where we are. That's not to be said it's the right thing to do. It puts you on a very different path. And certainly you're then on the path to growth, which requires more capital, again, to take on the big companies we're trying to take on. So yeah, it made sense for us, given the ambition and also given the the type of product we're selling, which is a high volume product, you have to sell lots of soft drinks to make a big business. Uh, whereas in some of the other categories, it might not be quite so important, depending on how quickly you want to grow, which markets you're in, and what the product margins are like. Um, but certainly, it's definitely changed based on the, why the strategic food and drink companies going, wow, we need new stuff. Um, we can't innovate it ourselves, and entrepreneurs are doing a better job of it. And is there anyone nowadays who's actually you know, holding back from getting investment and kind of saying, no, I'm just going to prove myself through organic growth. And once I've done three years, then I'll potentially look for investment outside. I I would argue there are lots of good examples that probably don't get the press they deserve. They definitely get less press than the businesses that do flashy fundraising and spend lots of money on PR because they're not spending loads of money on PR. I think personally, that's where the market's going to shift to over the next kind of five to 10 years. It will be more about proving you can do this without raising lots of money, um, having sensible business models. Um, WeWork, where I am right now, is kind of the first case study in a, a macro scale of a business that wasn't really looking after its numbers and raising money to paper over cracks. And I think if, if you're able to do that, it gives you so much more power and control to be in control of your own destiny, but also raise money when the time's right for you to go okay, I've got this working. Now, do I want some extra capital to grow this faster? Or do I just want to keep doing what I'm doing? 
ultimately it's all about being happy and whatever success is for you right yeah so the founder or person running the business can make that decision based on what success looks like yeah and i think it's also interesting if you don't have any money and you don't have anyone else's money so you know when, when you get funding it's somebody else's money at the end of the day yeah and and this isn't to disrespect anybody who has received investment but I'm imagining that if you don't have any money, you have to learn to operate and be successful with no money on a shoestring, you know. And I remember in the first year of Goo in France and and, uh, we had, I think we had 50,000 euros to spend on marketing and sales. Yeah. That's all we had. And as a result, we had to be incredibly creative with the kind of things we did with that money. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I I just, it's something that strikes me. It's a a really good point you've made and... um, Ugly didn't have lots of money at the beginning. We've raised more money as we've grown. So we we internally have that philosophy. I think it's Winston Churchill quote, we have no money, therefore we must think. So we started our business around a kitchen table. We then moved into a shipping container. We had, you know, very small team for a long time. We launched the business in America and the UK with four four of us, including Joe and me and two others. Um, So we, we were selling in Los Angeles, New York, London, Manchester, Birmingham with four people. Um, now the team's bigger because we've been able to show that it worked. But as you said, if you know, it, it can be a curse to have lots of money too. And there's lots of businesses that are wasting money, and lots of businesses, you know, they say what's the Warren Buffett quote is: "You find out who's swimming naked when the tide comes in." <laughs> and so when the money runs out, you can really see what happens. And I think yeah. a lot of a lot of companies need to start being smarter about how they're allocating capital and spending it. I think also a lot of uh, investment firms need to be smarter about who yes. who they have on their team who's recommending the investment. Because I think food, particularly food, maybe not so much beverage, but it, because food is more tends to be more perishable, particularly startup food tends to be more perishable than, say, beverage. Well, maybe that's not true because you've got lots of fresh beverages as well. But basically, there are so many idiosyncrasies about the food and beverage market that unless you've worked in it for three to five years and you understand all of this stuff about supply chain and shelf life and margins and wholesalers and field sales and whether sampling is going to give you more growth than online, you know, I don't know how anyone in an investment firm could actually tell whether a business plan is robust or not if they haven't, mm-hmm. they don't have the feel for that. And that's the bit that, yeah. that that shocks me the most, that you've got all these investment firms investing in food and Bev, and you see their, the people on their team and none of them have worked in food. And I, I, I find that just bizarre. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that is something that is going to become way more publicly visible in the next five to 10 years is... These industries, like food and drink, you need expertise. You need operators who understand it. Um, it's not tech, you know. It's different. Yeah, I mean, even tech. There's plenty of uh, plenty of skeletons in the graveyard in tech of tech businesses that receive capital without uh, people knowing what they're doing either. Yeah. Um, food and drink, as you said, is is so unique. I mean, people are actually eating and drinking these products. Like there's there's health on the line. You can't sell rotting food. You can't sell something that's going to poison people. Mistakes happen, you know, freezes break overnight and stuff melts. You know, mm-hmm. if you don't understand that, then, then, you know, you need to, you need to develop that empathy quicker. I think. Yeah. That being said, there are some amazing food and beverage investors out there as well who have been there and done it. So if you can find the right ones, you can add value um, or add different types of value as a team of people, then, then you can really put a good, a good, good group together to help you get there. Well, I'm looking forward to speaking to one of them uh, over the next few months. It's one of my missions to really try and understand, get under the skin of, you know, how this investment decisions get made by 
investment firms who've made some really good decisions in in food and beverage. So I'll be reaching out to to my network. I'll be listening. I'll yeah. Be listening. <laughs> so listen, look. Thank you so much for your time. Last last question. Uh, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day and go, "Crap, this is massive"? Or what what's that moment for you? Yeah, I was awake at three thirty this morning worrying about stuff. Um, I'm I, I'm trying to get better at it, but um, yeah, I mean we're going full throttle in multi different um, many categories internationally. It's scary a lot of the time, and that is something you get used to. You know what used to be scary for me now doesn't scare me at all, and I think that's just what growth is: personal growth and business growth. Running a startup is the the biggest personal development journey I've ever been on as myself as a business person as a leader but also as a human so yeah it's not easy um some days you want to throw in the towel but ultimately I'm so, I'm so passionate about this so passionate about the industry I love creating stuff I love the mission we're on that it becomes incredibly difficult to give up um so you hold on for dear life when stuff comes at you and then you just keep going there's only way only way through it is to go through it essentially well listen I think you're incredibly brave I really do and that's why I wanted to talk to you because to go on a journey across to the States um, so early on in the development of the business and to do it at such a young age and to take on so many people and so many states and so many, you know, big players in a massive category. I really feel like you're very brave. I really do. So I want to wish you, <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> I want to wish you all the very best. Uh, I think your can is going to be iconic. I really do. hope so. No, I really do. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It takes it takes a while. It, it's punchy at, at the beginning, um, but I think it's it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's going to be one of those iconic brands. So well done. Congratulations. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course, I really appreciate uh, the invite and uh, yeah, getting to know you as well. Been great. So thank you. Thank you.